0: So what's the big surprise, Bob? Why are we on this airplane? Well, you know how we want to get more music by more artists to more people to hear? Yeah? I've rigged this plane up with a loudspeaker. <laughs> I figured we'll just buzz every neighborhood we can reach and play as much music as possible. Are you kidding? I have, look, I have a much better idea. What do you mean? What, what's that? Just donate to the public radio station of your choice. When you do that, it helps make the All Songs Considered podcast possible. We're all part of a big public radio family, and listener support helps ensure All Songs Considered keeps sharing more music by more artists from all over the globe. Just go to donate.npr.org music to get started. Donate.npr.org music. Yep, donate.npr.org slash music. There you can make a donation to the public radio station of your choice. You support the station. That supports the public radio family, which supports all songs considered. Well, I'm going to say that over the loudspeaker. Donate.npr.org slash music. Now land this plane. Um, let's see. What does this lever do? From NPR Music and All Songs Considered, I'm Robin Hilton with a special episode from NPR's How I Built This podcast with Guy Raz. If you've listened to All Songs Considered much over the years, chances are you've heard us play something released by Merge Records. The independent label based in North Carolina is home to a lot of truly beloved bands and releases, like Neutral Milk Hotels "In The Airplane Over the Sea, Arcade Fire's Funeral, and so many more albums from Spoon, Dinosaur Jr., M. Ward, Waxahachie. On this episode, Laura Balance and Mac McCann talk about how they created Merge Records when they were college students in the late 80s, and how it became one of the most influential indie labels of all time.
1: One of my roommates, her dad worked for Budweiser, and they had made these bass guitars that were Budweiser-themed. It said Budweiser on the bass? Yes, it did. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it looked like a can of Budweiser. Um, I have no it, memory of that. And, That's hilarious. And then somehow it turned into Mac teaching me how to play bass. And I think that was all a ploy, because I did have a boyfriend at the time.
2: He wasn't teaching you how to play bass, apparently.
3: <laughs> From NPR, it's how I built this about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how two indie rockers launched a record label, named it after a road sign, and grew Merge into one of the most influential names in independent music. Building a successful business basically means being able to make smart bets, right? Especially if you're in the business of venture capital. The business is basically betting. You invest millions of dollars in a lot of promising startups, knowing that most of them will falter or fail outright. But you're betting that every now and then, you will invest in a winner, a business that maybe five or ten years down the road will have a liquidity event, which is a polite way of saying that a few people are going to make lots of money. Anyway, one of the things that struck me when I was doing research for today's show is that an indie record label, or any record label really, is sort of like a VC fund. Just like a VC fund, the label takes a chance on a lot of maybes, with the hope of eventually hitting a winner. In this case, a band that will sell hundreds of thousands of albums and make a ton of money for themselves and, of course, for the label. But unlike many VC funds, most indie record labels don't start with lots of cash to invest. They are almost by definition small and scrappy, with an artistic vision that, at least in the beginning, may be more important than making a lot of money. And this, basically, is where Laura Balance and Mac McCann began when they started the indie label Merge in 1989. Laura and Mac were musicians themselves. They were part of the band Superchunk. And in fact, playing and touring and being immersed in the indie scene in the late 1980s was one of the things that inspired them to start their own label. In the early years, income from Superchunk basically helped Laura and Mac keep Merge from going bankrupt. And that income allowed them to make a lot of small bets on lesser-known indie artists. Until eventually, in the early 2000s, one of their bets paid off with the massively successful band Arcade Fire. But the story of Merge is also the story of the rise of indie rock in the 1990s. The label became hugely influential and helped to introduce bands like Spoon, Neutral Milk Hotel, The Magnetic Fields, and many others to music fans around the world. And all of this happened because of the creativity and also the tension between Laura and Mac, who are professional partners today, but at one point were also romantic partners. The two of them met in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, when they were both college students. And before that, Laura spent her high school years in Raleigh and Atlanta. It was the early 1980s and she was already following the punk music scene and going to lots of clubs.
1: We started going to shows at the Metroplex, which was a a punk rock club that we were able to go to as underage kids. I think most of us, if we saw our kids going to that place now, we would be really scared. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> it, it was in this, where, like, abandoned warehouse part of town, you know? Yeah. It, was, it was pretty uh, dodgy.
3: What do you remember about the music that attracted you to it? I mean, you know, from everything I've read about you, you're a self-described introvert, you're quiet, you're shy, you get anxious being in front of people, and then mm-hmm. there's this really intense and often loud, angry, explosive music that you were listening to. Can you connect the dots for, for me? on that
1: um i guess because of my personality and because of things that had happened in my youth i felt different i felt like an outsider <laughs> and being introduced to the punk rock community i felt like i had found all the other not normal people you know <laughs> yeah. like i had found a place to be where it was okay to not be normal yeah and the music was an expression of that too.
3: You sort of, you describe yourself as like an outsider and like, you know, the, the kind of kids who would be called freaks or, you know, right, or, or weirdos. Today, it's funny, it's hard to find a teenager without blue hair or, right, or, <laughs> or, or, or who, who looks like what would be described as different in the in the 70s and 80s. Were you that kind of kid? Like, were you, did you dress differently than other kids and did you wear your hair differently than other kids?
1: Yes. What, yes, what did you look like? I did. Well, At one point, I had, like, calico hair. Mm -hmm. I sort of settled into having black hair and teasing it up and crimping it. And back then, also, like, it was harder to, like, whatever you wanted to look like, you had to assemble it yourself. You had to make it happen. You couldn't just go to Hot Topic and buy it. People put safety uh,
3: pins in their clothing.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Or, like, for some reason, I would even, like put egg whites in my hair to Uh, make it more, like, stiff. Yeah. and (laughs) As opposed to going and buying some Aquanet.
3: (laughs) And would you, if somebody saw you when you were 16 or 17, would they say, oh, there's Laura, she's a goth? Yes. That's what they would say. Probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I went to high school, especially at first, walking down the hall, and there would be these girls who would, you know, to make fun of me, they would act like they were scared and jump out of the way and against the lockers. Like, like they had to get out of my way because I was a monster walking down the hall. <laughs> oh um, and I would just kind of, you know, pretend that I didn't notice because I didn't know what else to do.
3: Yeah. All right, I want to turn to you, Mac. As a kid, do you did you get into music pretty early or did it happen later when you were a teenager?
2: I was into it pretty early just in the sense that my dad was really into listening to music and had a record player and records. You know, when you would get into my my dad's car, much to my mom's chagrin, the radio would be set to, like, blasting. So when you start, started the car, I remember, the, you know, the radio would be on really loud. And um, And, you know, at that time, the radio that we were listening to was... I guess what you would now call classic rock at the time it was just rock. Yeah, because right. it was contemporary. But yeah, so I knew that my dad was, even though from looking at him you wouldn't necessarily know it, he was really into
3: rock and roll. And can you say that uh, looking at him you wouldn't know it because he was a lawyer, right? Right. So he
2: just looked. I mean, he didn't. He didn't look rock and roll. I <laughs> guess you would say. Right. But yeah, so Exile on Main Street was a record that. Oh yeah. Uh, we listened to a lot. And wow. My dad was a a big Led Zeppelin fan as well. Yeah. One time I asked him why he didn't have any Beatles records, (laughs) and he said they weren't heavy enough. (laughs) But yeah, I was really into The Who, but also like ACDC was probably my favorite band, I guess I would say at that time.
3: Um, When do you remember your kind of taste in music veering more toward the kind of things that, that Laura was listening to, like, Hardcore and, and punk. Did did that happen when you were a teenager?
2: I think I was probably more like so Laura was in a high school in Raleigh, I was in Durham and I met people at school who were both into the Who and you know, Led Zeppelin and ACDC, but they were also listened to the college radio stations. And so finding
3: out about that is what kind of exposed me to other kinds of music. I read um A story about how I guess when you were in your – like in your early teens, you went to like see a couple of hardcore bands playing at a coffee house. And that was sort of a moment where it blew your mind because it was live music and it was loud music that kind of got you thinking about maybe starting your own band. Is that – is that right? Is that true? Yeah. I saw a flyer for a show at the
2: Duke Coffee House, which is an all-ages place on campus at Duke. And – the Flyer is for a band called The Ugly Americans, <laughs> and also a band called The Band With No Name. And The Band With No Name was super weird. I don't even know if you would call it punk, really. I think it was just more, like, odd. And like
3: thrashing, just shouting, like, DIY. It was more thing. like,
2: I i feel like it was noise and maybe, like, a Casio or a drum machine or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was strange. And then the Ugly Americans played and that was kind of more what I knew to be like punk. But uh, yeah, so that was at the Duke Coffee House, and punk shows were were usually all ages unlike shows at the clubs where you would hear a song on the radio by a band like on college radio and you'd be like, oh, this band, you know, the, the Rain Parade, they're, they're playing at the Cat's Cradle and you'd be really into it and then realize like you couldn't go to that show because mm. it
3: was drinking age only. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, all right, so, you, so you're... Getting into the the live music scene and and I guess around this time, you're also starting to play guitar, right? And so by the time you graduate high school, you you're playing in a few bands, and you and and this guy named Jonathan Newman, um I guess you start a band together called the slush puppies mm-hmm. and and yeah. and was it fair to describe? like the bands that you were playing in were they? How would you describe the sound? The new i mean, sort of like new wave, you describe like a new wave cover band?
2: What? I would say like new wave and then slush puppies were like a little more punk. Got it. Punky. But also, you know, there was this kind of music that at the time you would have a lot of bands fell under the broad umbrella of like college rock or something, yeah, you know? Right. Right. And so like our g- guitars were distorted and everything, but we weren't playing a million miles an hour. It was more punk along the
3: lines of, like, the Buzzcocks or something like that. I mean, you must have been a pretty good student in high school. You went to Columbia for college in New York.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I did fine in some classes and not great in other classes, and really going to New York City was the thing that I was the most excited about. I mean, being in New York between 1985 and 1990 was, like, a really good time to be in New York, both for, like, New York music as well as the fact that I was living in a place where every band played no matter where they were from.
3: I get I guess after a year in at Columbia you decided to take a year off and go come back to North Carolina and you moved to Chapel Hill. Did you was, was there a reason why you did that?
2: Well, I ended up taking a year off after 2 years at Columbia. It was originally because as much as I loved New York, I also missed being in North Carolina and being able to play music because Hmm. playing music was what was difficult about being in New York. You know, you can't just have a band playing in your dorm room or your apartment like you can in in Chapel Hill or whatever. And I did have a couple times of, like, taking my amp and my guitar on the subway downtown to a practice space, and it's just like, that was (laughs) was a drag. Hmm. So then I had a year off, which was awesome because it was, you know living in north carolina playing music working at kinkos and
3: pizza place and record store and just doing different things just doing different things um, yeah and yeah. i guess that was that's how you and laura met right because she was going to college at chapel hill and and both of you were working at the pizza place yeah pepper's pizza and you were at a unc laura right and mm-hmm. and mac was a this guy that you met there, and 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 I mean, did he make an impression on you from the beginning? Or what, do, what do you remember? Did, did, did yeah? What's what's your recollection of of when you first met him?
1: So there's this thing where the Raleigh scene and the Chapel Hill scene were kind of they were separate, and there was some sort of rivalry which I picked hmm. up on. The kids in Raleigh seemed like more serious and more into the the kind of like more menacing side of punk rock or something. And the Chapel Hill kids seemed to be more goofy. Like Raleigh was more hardcore to me, and Chapel Hill was more like poppy punk. And I met Mac, Jonathan Newman, and Gray Brooks, I guess around the same time. And to me, they were this sort of unit But I was um, in a band with Jonathan
2: and Gray was my friend that we had also gone to high school with us. Yeah, yeah.
1: They, you know, were always cracking jokes and being silly. And my impression was that was that Mac was one of these three funny guys. Got it. I mean, we say we
2: met at Peppers, but but we were both going to the same like concerts and shows at clubs and stuff like that. And Laura made an impression because she was so goth. Like when you say so goth, like
3: goth, like an Edward Gorey character, like like. Not like that. that goth, but Not I that mean, goth, okay. like,
2: you, know, you know, black hair, makeup, chains, all the accoutrement. Right. Yes,
1: yeah, so I had the accoutrement, but I have to say I did tone it down a bit because I decided that it wasn't worth Raleigh, all the
2: trouble. Raleigh wasn't ready. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Got it. Got it. Um, and, and did you guys become friends right away?
1: No.
2: Not necessarily. Not Right away.
1: I feel like, you know, we got to be friends when we were working at Peppers together at the same time. Right, yeah. It's like trial by fire. You know, it brings you closer together (laughs) working at a a place like Peppers. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Um, Meantime, Mac, from, from what I understand, like, during that year when you came back to Chapel Hill in the middle of your time in college, you and Jonathan, your friend Jonathan, got back to kind of recording music for the Slush Puppies or really kind of took it seriously. And you actually got a gig opening for... Fugazi, which anyone who's who knows anything about like hardcore punk, American punk, knows that band knows Ian MacKay, classic DC hardcore band. He was a big deal. You got and you guys got to open for him at that at the Cat's Cradle. That's kind of a legendary club, right in in Chapel Hill, right? Cat, Cat's Cradle. It is,
2: and it's it's been in a few different locations. But the Cat's Cradle's been around for over fifty years now in different in different locations, and. Yeah, I mean, the, the the most exciting thing about being in a band like Slush Puppies was who you got to open for. You know, there's a lot of local bands, and everyone's trying to get to open for the cool bands who came through on tour. You know, whether yeah. that was Fugazi or the Volcano Suns or who, who, whoever it was, Sonic Youth, whoever it was going to be. So this was their going to be their third show ever. So I, I mean, I'm, I was excited about being able to set that show up at the Cat's Cradle and being able to open that show. Of course, it was very exciting.
3: So yeah, that was a big deal with them hmm. and, and I guess uh, around this time Mac you were you were playing a bunch of different bands and and there was right. one project that that you started which would actually kind of plant the seeds from for merge records I guess where where what you thought hey let's let's put out a record with a bunch of other bands like a limited number of records and and just sell them ourselves what, what how did that come about what is uh, what's the story
2: so the band Slush Puppies we talked about, and another band I was in called Wax with two W's, and uh, three other local bands. We put out a box set of seven-inch singles, and this was something that was kind of masterminded by the bass player in Wax, Wayne Taylor. He talked about it like, "Oh yeah, like I know how this. I know how we do this. Like we get this is the place that we get records pressed, a local printing place called Barefoot Press can." Make the sleeves for us, or make some booklets to go in the boxes. And our friends who are in a silk screen company, Tannis Root, Bill and Barbara, they can silk screen the front of this box set. That's going to be this compilation of all these singles of local bands. That was kind of the idea, like a snapshot of the scene, the local North Carolina music scene at that time.
1: Hmm. And, and the way that that it came about was really a community effort too. You, all those all those different businesses that. Mac just mentioned, you know, they were part of the community. And, and I think all the bands pitched in in various ways, too, mm-hmm. in labor and cash to have the records pressed.
2: It was just doable. I mean, I think it was mysterious to me before then how that, how that, how that all happened. But, um,
3: but that's kind of how we learned, you know. Right. And sometime, some at some point, I, I guess in sort of 1988, the two of you start dating. What do you remember? How how did it happen? I mean, you you guys had worked at the pizza place together and presumably became friends and then became boyfriend-girlfriend. And we
1: started playing music around that time, too, I think. I think it started with one of my roommates. Her dad worked for Budweiser, and they had made these bass guitars that were Budweiser-themed, and she had gotten one. And didn't know how to play it. She had never played an instrument. It said Budweiser on the bass? Yes, it did. And it was like, you know, it looked like a can of Budweiser. Um, I have no memory it, of that. That's and, hilarious. And she wanted Mac to come over and teach her how to play bass. And he was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, we need a bass player. Maybe, you know, you can, co- I'll come over and, and, you know, teach you how to play bass. And then somehow it turned into him teaching me how to play bass. And I think that was all a ploy because I did have a boyfriend at the time, but. <laughs> My boyfriend was in Raleigh.
2: He, wa- he wasn't teaching you how to play bass, apparently.:
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, so you were teaching Laura how to play bass, and that's because you you didn't play any instruments before that, right, Laura? No,
2: mm it was kind of co- so we could have a band with Jonathan
3: you wanted right. to, you wanted you thought Laura would be great in a band, and so you were like, I'll teach you bass.":
2: Yeah, Jonathan had drums, I played <laughs> guitar,
3: and we needed a bass player, right
1: but I think that was just a way. For us to start dating, really, because we could, we would hang out more because we were playing in a band together, and it sort of evolved that way. (laughs) Mac, you then
3: okay? So you go back to finish out your time at Columbia. How did how did you and Laura? I mean, were you Laura? Were you going up to visit Mac? Were you coming back down to Chapel Hill all the time? Like, because you because you start what would become a six year relationship, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I came home on vacation and New York was a pretty common trip for anyone from North Carolina to make in yeah. terms of going to see bands up there or whatever. Like it didn't feel like that big of a deal. So there's a lot of travel back and forth.
3: All right. Meantime, you're going back uh, to college and playing a bunch of bands and, and you and Laura are dating. And from what I understand, at some point, uh, maybe it was like, uh, like what w- between your junior and, and senior year, Uh, In college, so I guess this would be like the summer of nineteen eighty-nine. Yeah, you start another band called Chunk uh, with Laura. Is is that how you remember it?
2: Yeah, that seems that sounds right. It uh, was that summer. Chunk was the band that we
3: started that summer with Chuck Garrison and Jack McCook. And and um, this is after the drummer in the band, right? Who's actually his name was Chuck, but he somehow inspired the name chunk for the band
2: apparently he was listed in the phone book as chunk garrison right
1: yeah they had it was a misprint
3: it was a misprint so that's that's how that name where that name came from right so he inspires the name chunk and here's my question for you mac every time you formed a new band in your mind was it like this is going to be the band that's going to make it or was it just like this is fun let's just do a band it was
2: much more the latter. I don't think I ever had the idea, like, trying to, quote-unquote, make it right. in the music business or whatever. You know what I mean? It was just more like, hey, like, we all live
3: within five blocks of each other. What, what, we might as well have a band. And so, what did you think you were going to do when you graduated from college?
2: I honestly just didn't know. I mean, I think that I <laughs> probably thought I was going to, like, work in a record store or something right. like that. You right. Know? I didn't have a grand plan. <laughs>
3: Um you you were the main you were the lead singer and lead guitarist, right? And Laura, right. you were a bass guitarist. Yes. How would you describe the sound of what was then called chunk? Before it would become super chunk, but how would you describe the sound? I would say punky. Mm-hmm.
1: But poppy also. Like people at the time compared us to the Buzzcocks. But it was also sort of college rock at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, we did
2: a Shangri las cover on the B side, so there's definitely pop. Right.
3: All right. So you guys formed this band, and that summer you took a road trip to Seattle.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And in yeah. Seattle, from what I understand, you guys actually went to to the Sub Pop offices to meet with Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poneman, who, who've been on the show before. Did you guys go there for any specific reason, thinking maybe you could sign your band to their label? Like, what? Why did you go visit Sub Pop?
2: Well, I, one of my friends from school Aubrey Summers was friends with them just from growing up, I guess, from high right. school or something like that. And so it wasn't like, oh, you can get your band signed. It was just more like we're fans of Mudhoney and Sub Pop and she's like, "Oh, I can I know those guys. I can we can go see their office." It wasn't like really a business proposition as just right. like we're fans. It was fans. just like, let's go check it out. Yeah, this is going to be cool.
1: Yeah, it's just fun.
2: And did you meet them? I think we did meet them. I think we did. I just don't remember, but I do remember thinking, like, oh, this is cool, but it's also, like, just, it looks like an office. Yeah. It was not exotic. It was exotic because it was sub-pop and we were in Seattle, which was wild, but it was also very normal.
3: I mean, you had this band called Chunk, but what, like, how did the idea come about to start a record label? How did that conversation even start? Was it on that road trip?
1: It was on that road trip. Yeah. Hmm. Mac brought up the idea of starting a record label, that we should start a record label and we should put out our own records, you know, do do seven inches and stuff. And... It sounded pretty casual and, like, fun. And we knew, you know, we knew it was possible. You know, the, the, the veil of mystery had been removed from yeah. the idea of making records.
3: Because Mac, a couple of previously, had already been involved in pressing vinyl records and it was just a thousand records. But still, you kind of knew that it wasn't this scary thing, that it was possible to, to actually make records and sell them.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and to actually do it in a sort of casual way. Because when that group of artists in Raleigh made that box set, none of them were trying to start a record label. There wasn't a lot of promotion done. There was no marketing done. It was just, we're making this, do you want to buy it? That seemed like something that wasn't intimidating and something that we could do. If I had thought that it was going to turn into what it is now or or that that was the goal... I would have said, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds like too much work. No way.
3: When we come back in just a moment, how Laura and Mac juggle the demands of launching a new record label while managing a band and their own relationship. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This
0: from NPR. Hey, welcome back to How I Built
3: This. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the summer of 1989, and Mac and Laura are back in North Carolina after a road trip to Seattle. And this turns out to be a pretty eventful year because not only have they started a band called Chunk, they've also decided to start their own record label. To the idea of starting a label, come out of frustration with major labels or with the fact that no. none of your bands were signed no it was not had nothing
1: to do mm-hmm.
2: with that no it was more it wasn't a reaction to something that we didn't have it was more like wouldn't this be cool like i think in other words like it didn't even have to really be discussed like oh it'll be like this kind of label not like that kind of label it was just like we we knew what we were into yeah. For instance, like, we had just gone to see the Sub Pop offices, and just being able to make something of our own that was both like what Sub Pop would do, but not Sub Pop, but, but but our own thing. You know what I'm saying? Right.
1: And we know all these bands. Maybe they'll let us put out their, a 7-inch with their music on it. And plus, Mac was in a million bands. Right. So there was plenty there that we could put out but you weren't you weren't
3: thinking about this as like a business you were thinking about this as a fun thing to do
2: yeah more like an like a i don't know if art project is the right word but yeah. more of a an artistic endeavor rather than a business endeavor right
3: by the way how did you come up with the name merge merge records
1: well we were on a road trip
3: <laughs> and you saw a sign that said merge
1: yes Yes, we were, sit, we were driving along trying to name it. And I found myself just looking around going, antelope, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yield, merge, and <sighs> merge seemed okay. I mean, really, naming anything is terrible. It's hard. And, and when you first name it, it has the meaning of the word. Hmm. And then over time, it loses the meaning of the word and becomes just a word. It's the same with naming your band. Anything you say for a name for your band sounds really stupid until you've lived with it for a while, yeah. And whenever we have to explain how we named merge, it's 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 sort of embarrassing to me <laughs> because it's so just straightforward. well, could have been Antelope <laughs> records
2: here we are
3: <laughs> um what? I mean, you guys had a band because I know that um later that summer in nineteen eighty nine, you actually recorded some songs your first few songs you recorded at a studio but what did having a label mean the the label that you had would be in charge of like getting the record pressed and and getting artwork made and then getting it to record stores is that what the the role of the label would be
1: yeah and and Having helped assemble those box sets, something else that really appealed to me was the sort of craft aspect of it. The idea of making these objects and and putting them together and, you know, designing them really appealed to me. I had always liked making things and having seven inches made, which is more what I was thinking about than starting a record label. We would get to decide what they were going to look like and then put them together. And that appealed to me. But did it? If in
3: fact it was a, it was about just distributing and printing and doing all this stuff for Chunk. Why did you even need to create a label?
1: It wasn't just going to be for Chunk. It was going to okay.
3: be for other you bands. Know, for you other were bands to help too. other bands out. I got you.
1: Right, like other bands in our community, and also Max, other bands. <laughs> right. And I think that
2: to answer your question, like why have a label? Why not just be like, here's a Chunk record? To me, the idea of the label wasn't the mechanism, the place that, like, does the printing and the manufacturing and the distribution, blah, 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 though it was that in reality, also. I thought of a label as the kind of aesthetic umbrella of, like, a certain group of artists. In other words, like, when I thought of record labels, I thought of 4AD or Sub Pop or Discord or Teen Beat Records. Like, they each had their own kind of voice, even though there was different bands within those families, you know what I mean? So to me, the idea of the label, it was more like, here's a, like I said, like a voice, or like here's an umbrella that that means something when you see that name.
1: I think it also helps when you're trying to sell the object, when you're calling record stores or calling distributors, if you aren't calling saying I want to sell you a seven inch by my band yeah. chunk
3: right it was different if you were advocating on behalf of somebody else
1: right so I'm calling from merge records <laughs> and, and yeah. I have, we have this, this great band and, yes and, and, yeah <laughs> we
3: happen to be in the band but you don't need to know that <laughs> yeah that makes sense so you record you know you record some tracks you've got the label going by the way out of curiosity um did you form, like, I mean, you're, you're still in college, both of you. Did you form, like, an LLC? Did you, I don't know, Mac, I mean, I'm just projecting here, but your dad was a lawyer. Did he help you guys, like, set up the business? Did you do any of that?
1: Not right away.
3: It was just, you just called it Merge Records, and it kind of lived in, I don't know, your your apartment, Laura? Or your yes. room, dorm room or something? I, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was living with some other women in a house and— Merge Records was in my bedroom, on a shelf, and it wasn't too long before Mac's dad figured out what we were up to and was like, "You guys need to need to uh, incorporate. Incorporate. Yes, exactly. I right. suggest you're an S corp." Oh, really? And- so,
3: so, so that's so that's how it happened. He he kind of gave you some advice on what to do and how to set it up.
1: Yeah, I mean, he yeah. basically did it, <laughs> and then it's he like, "Here, sign the papers." <laughs> hmm. And, and uh,
3: well, I guess you would. You were going to start. Simply just producing singles and and like cassettes, but even to, to do that, I mean, did did you have any money, any startup money?
2: We borrowed money from friends and family, almost on like a per release ba- basis. Like our friend Lydia, I think, lent us like five hundred dollars or something, maybe for our first single or something.
3: And by the way, what would five hundred dollars buy you? Like how many copies of the single that you could then sell?
2: I don't know, maybe that would pay for printing the sleeves or something? I I can't remember exactly.
1: I mean, things were cheaper back then. I think that it may have been enough to press 500 500 records. records. Yeah, they cost less
2: than a dollar each. And sometimes like the band would chip in money to press the record, and then we would pay them back. So any money that we had was like profit, the small amount of profit after paying someone back for helping us press the record.
3: Meantime, you put out for Chunk, you put out some music on this label Merge that you have. And this is complicated because I read that in like early 1990, you signed a deal, a record deal with a record label called Matador, which went on to, you know, release huge bands and become a really successful label in and of itself. You signed a three record deal, the band Chunk does, with Matador records. so. What it's a little complicated. Can you kind of break that down for for me and, and help me understand why you would do that if you already had your own record label?
2: Well, with Merge, we were doing tapes and then vinyl 7 inches. So the idea of putting out a full-length album, it just requires a lot more money and possibly know-how and uh, other things too. So Matador was interested in signing Chunk, to do albums. And if you remember, at that time, if you did a album, you'd have to make a vinyl LP and a compact disc and a cassette. Yeah. So you were manufacturing a lot of stuff. It's expensive. It's expensive. And so the idea of, of Chunk signing to Matador was more like a parallel track of, okay, we can keep doing stuff on Merge, too, Singles, and then our band will be able to kind of take this step up in terms
3: of being able to put out a, f- a full length album. And right around the time you signed to, to Matador, um, you also had changed the name of the band from Chunk to, to Super Chunk, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And do you remember what the dollar amount was when, when you signed with Matador? Was it tens of thousands of dollars? Was it thousands no. of dollars? hundreds of thousands
2: (laughs) several thousand (laughs) okay so so it was like it was like like three four
3: five thousand bucks we'll pay you this advance um we'll, we'll we'll cover the costs of the record and the distribution and then you know once we hit this amount of money you you'll get a percentage of royalties it was like that
2: yeah like it was a small deal right I mean, we knew how to do things cheaply, yeah, and we knew how to work fast as a in terms of recording as a band and work in a local studio. Like, yeah. We weren't trying to like we didn't think of this as oh now we're in the big leagues. We just thought of like oh we get to do
3: kind of what we would do anyway. <laughs> Did, um, here's 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 what I wonder. You graduate from Columbia, you go back to Chapel Hill. Your full time job now, Mac, is. Superchunk and Merge. And and I think, Laura, at that point, you still had another year of college left. But what I'm trying to figure out is, like, how did the economics of this work, right? Because, yeah, I mean, Superchunk was, you know, was gaining a sort of a cult following on on college campuses and, and, you know, you were touring, but you were never in the Billboard charts, right? You never had, Mm -hmm. like, mass... You were never selling, like, hundreds of thousands of copies of your records. But in those early days... Were the economics such that you could actually live off, off what you were making from Superchunk?
1: No.
2: No, the, no. E- the economics of of that were that we had day jobs. What did you do? Worked in the record store, worked at Kinko's.
3: Well, did everybody, anybody ever come up to you at Kinko's and say, dude, you're Mac from Superchunk? I don't think we were just
2: well-known. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we were well-known at all. <laughs> I got <yet>. you.
3: But <laughs> um, as, as you started to like get some more airplane stuff, you know, on College Stations, could you just focus on Super Chunk or did you still have to have other jobs?
1: We had other jobs for a long time. I think maybe after our third record came out, wow, we were mm. touring enough that it seemed like we could support ourselves with the proceeds from our tours. And, you know, it sort of got harder to keep a job at Kinko's because... <laughs> you'd be gone for 6 weeks or 2 months and then you'd come back and try to get on the schedule again and then um have to leave again 6 weeks later
3: did you did you feel like you had to tour a lot because that was the primary source of revenue and income for you guys is that was that a a factor in why you toured so much and you performed live so much
1: i think it was well, if you put out a record, that was, especially back then, that was the main way to promote the record. Aside from getting it on college radio, you had to tour. And not only were we doing it to promote the record, but because it was fun. And, and yeah. it was how you connected with people.
3: Y- Your... Um your record No Pocky for Kitty comes out. It's around the time, or maybe like a month after Nevermind by Nirvana comes out, which really kind of there's an explosion in attention to small labels and, you know, all of a sudden just an explosion. And then the major record labels kind of realizing that these these bands in Seattle and indie bands are, you know, potential gold mines. And But, but around that time, I mean, you guys started to get a lot of media attention, right? Like people were saying, oh, this is the next... Superchunk is the next breakout band. Did you remember that attention?
2: I remember it from the point of view of people who worked for major labels wanting to take us out to lunch type attention. But beyond that, I kind of feel like we were in our own world to a certain extent. And I I thought Nirvana was awesome, but it felt like they were kind of on another, a different level. It didn't feel, I I never felt like, oh, that's going to be us.
3: And in, in, in the meantime, you had your own label. I mean, at what point was there a band that, that kind of came that you Who's Who was the first band you signed? You know, I mean, it was built originally for your own band, but also to distribute other music. Who did you, was it mostly like Chapel Hill bands that were coming to
1: you? Chapel Hill and Raleigh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like we weren't really signing bands we were putting out seven inches, you know, which are one-off right. things, not a not something that anybody signs a document over. And plus, like, yeah, it was all among friends. It didn't feel like we had to sign anybody. Yeah. And then in 1992, we heard from Corey Rusk, who ran Touch and Go Records, and he had noticed what we were doing with Merge and. He said that he would like to have Touch and Go manufacture and distribute on behalf of Merge. And they were based in Chicago, right? They were based in Chicago. And and right. this would enable us to do full-length records.
3: So it would save you – you, because you couldn't afford to do that. You guys didn't have right. the cash. So they would, like, print the records and all this, the labels and everything. And you right. guys would be the distributor or the
1: – No, they do, would dis- – manufacture it for us, and then distribute it for us. Right. So that left us basically in the position of having to choose the bands. You were the talent spotters. Yes, and then also do the promotion, like the, the trying to get people to write about it, trying to get it on the radio, yeah. trying to get MTV to pay attention. But she um,
3: wasn't paying attention to your music. No. <laughs> yeah.
1: but, but I think the first band that we signed was, or didn't sign, was Palvo. You mean in terms of doing a full length? And yeah, that's the first band we did a full length with, and we they were handshake deals. We didn't do agreements. We sort of based how we dealt with bands on how Touch and Go did. You know what Corey did was a profit split, and so we thought that seemed fair, and so that's what we did with the bands that we started working with. So initially, you the band
3: you would sign a band, and by signing it, you wouldn't even do a contract. It would just be like, yeah, we're we're going to ask you guys to commit to, like, three records with us, and, and we'll... We we would not
1: s- even say that. What would you say? We would just say, we'd love to put out an album by you guys. Would you be into that? And they'd say, yeah. And that was and, it.
3: And then what did that mean? You would finance the recording
1: and the production of the record? I don't even remember giving Palvo in advance. We would take the masters, give them to touch and go and they would manufacture it i don't know do you remember it differently mac i feel
2: like we probably gave palvo a couple thousand dollars to record that record at Duck Key studios or something mm-hmm. um, but i mean it was more like it wasn't like here's a big lump of money go do whatever it was kind of like how much did it cost for you to record okay like well here's that
1: but there was no commitment there was no talk of right how many records we were going to do with them
2: I mean, our assumption, I think, to this day is that if we're doing a good job, then why wouldn't you want to do another record with us? (laughs) Though We do use contracts now, but uh, we were taking the handshake deal model from labels like Touch and Go and Discord and labels on the punkier
3: side of the industry. Now, at this point, I think around, you know, 92 or 93, uh, the two of you split up. You are no longer— together as a couple which you know i mean that's a long time to be together even though you were super young um but still yeah it's still a long time and i imagine that was not easy but here we are today i mean you know 25 years later more 30 years later still talking talking the two of you and clearly you're not together you both have your own families and your but your business partners then when you split up as a couple you had a band together and you had a business, this Merge label together. So what, what did you have a conversation and say, let's keep this going? Yes. Was it like that mature and adult?
1: It, I don't know if it was mature and adult. I don't know adult. how mature it was. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, but basically it felt, I mean, I felt like what what we had built with Superchunk and Merge was larger than us at, the, at this moment when we were splitting up. Personally, you know, like it was it felt like it had Merge and Superchunk both had a life of their own in a way. And like us not being together as a couple didn't have to mean that these other things had to dissolve, too.
3: When we come back in just a moment, how Laura and Mac keep their businesses together, even though they have split up and how Merge eventually makes a big bet on a little known band called Arcade Fire. Stay with us, I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR.
0: Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. I'm Guy Raz.
3: So, it's 1993, and Mac and Laura have just ended their romantic relationship after being together for about five years. But they are still very much together, very much partners when it comes to the record label Merge and their band, Superchunk. But maintaining that delicate balance is not easy.
1: It was not, and especially, like, touring with somebody you just broke up with, like being, yeah, it was hard.
3: And he was the lead singer. Yeah. And singing songs that may have been connected to, I don't know, maybe not, but you, you know, <laughs> connected to love or relationships or feelings and, I mean, that must have been hard. to, to It was be,
1: hard. Yeah. I think, like, yeah, I remember um, after Foolish came out touring for that record and being, you know, listening to him. St- singing those songs and, like, you know, being on stage and being angry and being sad and, you know, sometimes crying behind my hair, you know? Like, just, it was a hard time, for sure. What what I'm curious
3: about is, at this point, Merge is only three and a half years old, and so was Superchunk. They were still new. Neither of them were making a lot of money or... But clearly, you saw something in, in those two things that even though it was still early days and you were far far away from becoming sustainable in any way you saw something in merge and even in superchunk that convinced you guys to work through your personal differences
1: i think a lot of that was how much it meant to other people like it's a responsibility that is hard to put down you know once you start doing it and you realize that other people are attached to it it's harder to think about just deciding to do something else?
2: I mean, in a more selfish way, I feel like, you know, we started the band and the label, we were, like, doing things as fans
0: Mm. in the
2: sense that, well, I like the way this record label does things, or I like the way this band makes me feel when I see them live. I want to do that. And so from a selfish point of view, as opposed to, like, well, I can't take this away from these fans it was more like we've spent a lot of time like making this thing why should we give it up
3: yeah so so you're like 26 27 you're still really young but a really kind of mature decision i mean i i I guess maybe i don't know i mean i I remember when i was 26 i don't i don't know if i would have made such a mature decision I, i i think i would have been like screw you this is done goodbye but but really that, that's why I mean and maybe people listening are like well why are you so surprised about the decision they made guy, but I'm just telling you, <laughs> so I'm thinking out loud here I I just I I do think it was a mature, and we've had stories on the show of couples who, you know EO products the founders divorced and they kept go, kept it going amazing story Stacy's pita chips, you know um they had a split but kept kept it going, yeah I think I
2: think it's. I mean, it was it was mutual to the extent that neither of us wanted to punish the other person. Yeah. So, like, I think that maybe if there was something that had been more like one person was more angry about it than the other person, then that person could take it out on that person by being like, "Well, we're I'm, we're breaking up the band or something." Yeah. But like, we didn't. There wasn't really that feeling. So, why trash this? Yeah. This thing
3: that you've put so much into, you know. And sometimes that decision in a band can lead to a number one hit, like Don't Speak by No Doubt. Because she wrote it See? about the, the other, someone else in the band that they split up. And then she wrote that song. And there you go, number one song.
2: Now you know what we were really going for. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it didn't work out. But really, like, you're grinding away. You're doing a lot of touring. Here's what's interesting about that. Superchunk never became... I think I'm right to say, and you're still around, but it never became like hugely commercially successful. It it had a huge, strong fan base, but right, is it fair to say like never became hugely a huge commercial act, right? True. And just to be clear, if you had only done Superchunk, just from a business perspective, could the two of you have had had sustained your lives and your family's lives and paid your mortgage and your bills and all these things? Had you only done Superchunk?
2: Mm. No. I don't think so. No. Um, the-
1: but but yeah, like once we started slowing down the touring and were able to focus more on Merge, I think that like it enabled Merge to grow more. That's the thing,
3: right? Because Superchunk was the band. Merge was the label. I don't know if 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 one of those alone would have worked without the other, right? Because... While you guys were touring, I imagine you would meet other bands you know. while you were touring and, and playing festivals, and then probably people heard more and more about Merge Records, and so there was kind of like this cycle, like this ecosystem that was formed. Like people saw you perform or knew about the band and then found out about the label or knew kind of knew about the label and— met you guys, and then people say, oh, you should check out, you know, talk to Mac and Laura, because they've got, you know, from Superchunk because they've got this label. Is that that right? Is that how those two things were connected? Definitely. And, like, we would find out about bands,
2: and then other bands that were already on Merge would tell their friends about Merge, as you said, or they would come to us and say, like, hey, my friend's got a band. Like, you might not like them, but I think they're great, and send us their demos, you know. And so that's before Merge was big enough to be known by, I don't know, managers or whoever, like, we're finding out
3: from people that we already trust kind of thing, you know? So here's what I'm trying to figure out. You're basically spending most of much of the 1990s touring and also simultaneously building this label while also kind of dealing with the aftermath of your relationship. It's a lot going on, but... Why would a band go and work with you if they could go and work, at that time, if they could go work for a a bigger label that would give them a bigger advance?
1: Um, When you started a band, a punk rock band or a a band, it wasn't because you thought you were going to make a bunch of money and become famous. Yeah. It was because you did it because it was fun. And then it turned out you wrote some good songs and you were like, oh, I think we're good enough. We should make a record. But... You didn't think you were going to get on the Billboard charts. You didn't think that you were going to be able to make a living off it. Even you know, it was Superchunk was very lucky that we got to a point where we could support ourselves, yeah, and that we reached a point where we didn't have to have day jobs, yeah. other than running Merge once we got home, which we didn't get paid for, right. So, like whether a band would sign with us or not, it wasn't about money. It was about who do I trust and. Who will I feel good about working with? And that changed at some point. I feel like now things are different. Yeah. But but to, I think if there was a point you were making earlier, which is very true, that that like, I think the success of both Superchunk and Merge, they're codependent. Yeah. One fed the other. We couldn't have just started Merge by itself without Superchunk. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And be
3: where we are now. I mean, it's almost like Superchunk was like your. I mean, if I, I hate to put it in these crude terms but today, like we talk about social media marketing, right? And so like Superchunk was your kind of like the publicity arm. I know it wasn't, but it sort of was because people who liked the band then learned about merge and then it created this momentum
2: true and and from the other side, from the we talked a little bit about this, but from the artist' relations side, bands, are more open to working with the label, knowing that the people running the label
3: are also in a band. Right. They trust you. Yeah. Yeah, because they know that, or they hope that they're not going to get, you know, screwed by you. Um, I should have mentioned that for, for most of the first decade of the 2000s, Superchunk just took a hiatus. You just really kind of stopped the band and focused on the label.
1: We did. And
2: it wasn't, I mean, we couldn't have planned it. Yeah, But it did happen to coincide with Merge becoming a much busier um, yeah. and bigger label, which was kind of lucky timing in that sense. How
3: did the two of you – have there been times, let, let's say after you split up, right, and, and you're running this this label, where you guys had some significant enough differences between the two of you that there was a chance that, that Merge wouldn't survive it? I mean, we've definitely had disagreements but i never
2: i never felt like what's going to happen will there be a merge
3: did disagreements ever ever get into shouting matches i mean i can't imagine either of you ever shouting cuz you're so soft spoken and chilled out but maybe this is just in the interview i don't know did you ever shout at each other <laughs> shouting on email <laughs> yeah
1: we've shouted at e- shout, yeah email shouting all caps it's terrible it's so <laughs> like loud like disagreeing over um, what
3: over over what kinds of things
1: it's been a while since we've had one of those. I'm trying to remember what the last thing was where we were disagreeing. But, you know, for the same reasons that we broke up, probably we have difficulty communicating with each other. If I feel like I'm trying to say something and I feel like Mac is refusing to hear me, instead of figuring out a better way to say it, I turn into a lizard. <laughs> and And I just am an angry lizard under a rock. and And, like, I, it's hard for me to express myself.
3: I'm just mad. you just fume. you just silently fume.
1: I either silently fume or I send off some ill poor worded email that doesn't yeah. come across as I intended.
3: I want to ask you about um what I think is probably one of the turning points in merge because I think it would take at least a decade before you were even barely profitable, right? But mm-hmm. I want to ask you about a record that you released in 1998. So, so eight years in, nine years in. Um, the record's called "In the Aeroplane Over the Sea" by the band Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, this, for for people that don't know that record, um, hugely influential, it became a, just a hugely important like cult record among a certain um, kind of music lover, you know, indie rock or whatever we call it, called college rock, whatever whatever it was, but. I love this record. It's a beautiful record. I'll just be honest with everyone listening. Um, How did you come across that record? Because it was a slow burn. It wasn't like a huge hit right away. It didn't become a cult record for for, for many years um, until after it was released. How How did it come to you? How did you guys get that record? Well, that was the
2: second album that we released by Neutral Milk Hotel. Right. So we had that relationship. But as awesome as In the Airplane Over the Sea is... I don't remember feeling like when we got it and we heard it. I, I remember thinking this is awesome, but I don't remember thinking like, "Oh my gosh, this is so this different is than the last record. This yeah. is gonna blow people's minds."
1: Yeah, but but definitely like exceeded my expectations of you know what it would sell.
2: Sure, because it's not like when you hear a Neutral Milk Hotel, you think like, "Well, wow, this is gonna be some popular music." Mm. <laughs> you, you, you know, it's like a very unique thing that that band is doing everyone in it you know has is doing something interesting whether it's julian playing the saw i mean the the drumming is wild the horns you know yeah but what's interesting about that record is as you said it was kind of a slow burn and the band did not tour for that much longer after that record came out and they split up and and then they split up, and then that's kind of when the record grew
3: in people's right. minds and in the public perception. That record still was on many lists of best album, one of the best albums in the 90s. I'm assuming that must have been the first time that a Merge record got that much attention. I mean, I think that, you know, th- this was definitely talked about
2: in a different way, and it was kind of funny to me that. It it was spoken of with some sort of mystery because in our experience they're also just like a band stopping at Taco Bell on tour. Like they, you know what I mean? Like they were people. They weren't yeah,
3: right. They weren't ghosts, you know? Yeah. I'm curious about your selection process, right? I mean, how did you guys and how do you make decisions? I mean, do you just listen to thousands and thousands and thousands of demos over the years and If you like one, that's how you'd pick. I mean, what's your
1: criteria? That's part of it. Like, I mean, that's a big part of it. You just listen to it and what's you you try to figure out what sticks with you and what's different and interesting. And also, I think, you know, it helps a lot if they're nice people. Like, that is a big part of it, too, for us. And and did you,
3: I mean, as you sort of got better and better known in in that first decade— Were you just being inundated with demos? Yes, a ton of demos, tapes and
2: CDs. I mean, the good thing is you can often tell within 30 seconds or so whether this is going to be something that you're into or not, you know? Sometimes without even listening to it from the way it's being presented to you, you can tell. So you're not literally listening to thousands and thousands of entire demos, but there's a lot to go
3: through and you don't want to miss something that could be amazing, you know? Is there something that ever came to you that you guys did miss that you, and, some, and then somebody else picked it up and then you heard it and you were like, oh, my God, we missed this? Well, there's certainly things that we wanted to put out that we didn't get to. Though yeah. I do know that
2: after we put out the first Arcade Fire album, more than one booking agent called and said, you know, I could have booked that band. I had that CD sitting in a stack of demos wow. on my desk and I just never listened to it.
3: This is, the, this is the next, I think, hugely pivotal moment for the label. You released Arcade Fire's funeral, that that band would go on to become your best-selling band on the label. How did, you, how did you guys even get connected with Arcade Fire? Because, I mean, not only did they become a hugely commercially successful band, they won Grammys and Record of the Year and Album of the Year and all this stuff, like, hugely you know, on, on lists of best albums of, of, of all time. How did they come across your radar?
1: The best way for any demo to get to us is for it to be handed to us by someone we know and over the years of touring of course we met a lot of people one of them was this guy howard billerman he sent us a demo of the arcade fire he said you know they they came to record in his recording studio and you know he was like i think they're really good and and you you need to check them out and the CD sat on Max's desk for a while, and he listened to it. It sat on my desk for a while, and I listened to it. And the CD wouldn't play; didn't work. It was like a I DVD. don't. I didn't remember that part. It was
2: like a DVD or something weird. Like, ugh. And I was like, Howard, it's demo. I can't listen to it. Okay, I'll send you another one. Like he sent, he sent another disc. So we finally got a disc that we could play, and it was so good and so. I was into it to the point where I would play it for other people and be like, is this really good or is it just reminding me of things that I think are good? You know, like,
1: I loved it. You know, it went around the office and everybody liked it. But we're always, we make decisions very slowly. This is something that has always been sort of a, we try not to rush into working with the band. And in this case, it took us so long to make up our minds that when we finally reached out to the band... Apparently they were on the verge of signing a contract with a Canadian label hmm. and they got out of it and wound up on Merge. How'd you convince them to sign with you? Well, I guess I you know, at that point Merge had enough of a reputation that it was it was a more attractive choice than the one they were about to go with.
3: I have to imagine that that record and then their subsequent records really helped grow, merge, you know, by an order of magnitude, right? It's sort of like, I think of like um, Bloomsbury Publishing, that it was a small publishing house in London, and they signed an obscure writer named J.K. Rowling um, hmm. in like 1997 or something, you know, like 10 years after it was founded. And then, of course, Bloomsbury Publishing became enormous because Harry Potter became that series, you know, it's like the Bible, it's sold It is. It was Arcade Fire sort of like that for Merge. I think so. Yeah.
1: I mean, we had to grow in order to do what we needed to do to support that record.
3: Yeah, because it just it just took off.
1: Yeah, like we had to grow really fast to keep up with that record. And like yet again, we had we you you know we were like, okay, I think this is gonna this record's gonna be really it's gonna do really well. It's gonna sell at least four thousand copies. And <laughs> which
2: for a first record by a new band, that
1: would be really good. And yeah, they also—I mean—the album art for that record involved some elaborate um, foil stamping, and mm-hmm. it involved multiple steps in which the the printing place would have to like let this one part dry before they then do the next part. Otherwise, they'd stick to each other and like you know come the, the stuff would peel off. So it was expensive. It was expensive and slow. And so when the record came out and people started buying it, we didn't have any more, and we couldn't make them fast Mm. enough. And we kept like, you know, ordering more. And then by the time we got those, those were already sold out, and we'd have to do it again and again. Wow. Which
2: I, sorry, I would say is like a terrible feeling for us, Um, not being able to keep up
3: with a record that people want to buy. Yeah. I mean, how do? Can you explain? And maybe there's no explanation. Maybe it's just fate or whatever. But how does that happen? I mean, I mean, this record, their first record, Funeral, went certified gold in the U.S., which means it sold more than half a million copies. Double platinum in Canada, platinum in the U.K. Why this record? I mean, obviously it's an amazing album, but still, you need people to notice it and to talk about it. It's just some things kind of take off. I think it's
2: a combination of. How good that band was live makes people talk about them and makes them tell other people about them. Right. And then hearing those songs on record and they're as good as the band is live, it's an awesome combination. I remember when that band did their first like real U.S. tour, they were opening for Unicorns, I think, mm-hmm. and they came through Chapel Hill. They had a day off, and we got them a show in a tiny club in Chapel Hill called The Cave. It's underground. It holds maybe like 50 people or something like that. And that was the first time we had seen them live and they just blew everyone away. And you could just see like, wow, like this is, we're blown away, but this is going to blow everyone away. And I remember getting emails from people we knew around the country the first time they would come through town. I remember Brit from Spoon emailing the day after they played in Austin for the first time saying like, I just saw Arcade Fire and I simultaneously feel like I want to quit music and like I want to start a new band (laughs) like um, you know so like they were just making a huge impact on whoever saw them and I feel like that's one of
3: the most powerful ways to communicate with people I mean they they have sold millions of records I think funeral probably close to a million and definitely suburbs um, more more than a million I mean just to put this in perspective I mean that's that's a lot of money I mean that's tens of of dollars in record sales I mean, you guys said you weren't prepared for it. Like, Mm -hmm. I know that you weren't thinking in terms of money and and business, but I mean, it was like a lottery ticket in some ways, right? I mean, it just, like the fact that they sold so many records obviously reflects on on how good the music is, but also resulted in in Merge becoming more than just a a small little indie label. Well, it's interesting because the way that we work
2: just like we were saying, like, oh, if they sell 4,000 records like that, will be a success for a new band on their first album. We go into things trying to keep a rein on, you know, how much money we're spending because it's the band's money too, you know? Yeah. And so for better or worse, that does put us in a position of not having made the 50,000 records that we could have (laughs) sold from the get-go. But, you know, we also can't, assume because that would be insane to think that the next record we put out by any band is going to be like that so in other words we yeah. can't just scale merge up to handle a funeral every time because it's yeah almost never going to be right a funeral so
3: so once that record came out and all of a sudden you just you didn't have the support to staff how did you what did you do how did you how did you cope with that
1: some of what you do is you hire like independent publicists, you know, independent publicity people, you know, you hire out to contractors to do certain parts that you feel like you, you know, you find the right people and you hire them, you know, temporarily just for the project. That's a, that's yeah. a lot of it. The other thing is that when a record gets as big as our, or a band gets as big as Arcade
2: Fire, there's a percentage of people that know what label that record is on, but there's a much bigger percentage of people that don't know and don't care like even what a record label is. They're just like, I love Arcade Fire. You know, like yeah. when something yep. gets popular beyond what you think of as like alternative world or whatever, indie world, that's not people who really
3: think to look at the back of a record necessarily or even buy a record. If you were um if you want to make a lot of money in the throughout most of the 20th century you would become a newspaper publisher because you would print classified ads and it was like printing money. Like mm. if you wanted to make a lot of money, you know, in the fifties, sixties, seventies, you could start a eighties, uh, nineties, you could start a record label, right? I mean I mean the the guys who started Atlantic, I mean they people were making money with but if you wanted to lose a lot of money in the last twenty years, you'd start a record label. <laughs> right? Because because music went digital. People I just went to Amoeba Records, a legendary record store in Berkeley, California. And it's just wonderful. You walk through there, and it's like there's records, and there's there's, there's vinyl, and there's CDs, and it's, it reminds me of when I was a kid and I'd go to Tower Records in in Los Angeles. Just such a it's such a powerful feeling. But you know, there are very few record stores compared to when I was a kid. Obviously, I think you know I, I read that like in '94 there were like a billion records shipped. By 2007, it was like half of that. But by today, it's probably half of that. I mean. This has not been a good time to be a record label. And somehow you guys, like, have, have been thriving, growing. What what explains? I mean, people are going to Spotify. They're not buying records. They're not buying CDs. So what what explains the fact that you guys are
1: doing better than okay? There's moments where it feels like a struggle. I mean, it's definitely not <laughs> as easy as it was... You know, when people were buying downloads on top of buying CDs. Right, which they're not Um, doing anymore. They're not doing anymore. Um, But, you know, I think something else that has helped in the last seven to ten years has been vinyl coming back. Yeah. I wonder how many of these vinyl records are actually being listened to sometimes, but, like, that is helping... A lot to support artists and and record labels and record stores yeah one thing that's difficult is that even though the way people consume
2: music means that they don't really have to pay for it so much all the things that we do on behalf of bands because we our job is really to get the band's music out there to as many people as we can make them aware of the band Get the band's music in a place where the people can hear it easily and know about the band. All that stuff still requires just as many people as it used to, if not more, on our end. Yeah. Plus, we are still making vinyl and CDs and tapes, even. Um, so all of the job, all the jobs are still there for people on our end, but people don't have to pay for it on the other side. So that that's what's difficult. Now, I mean, it's interesting because. In some ways, the most old-fashioned ways of promoting music are still the most successful and powerful. And touring is one of those, because if you see a band live and they blow you away, like that stays with you more even than if you were just like you're in a coffee shop and you're like, "I like this song," you hit Shazam and see what it is, and you know you might remember to go check that out when you get home. You might not, but if you see a band live and they blow yeah. you away, like you're going to support that band, you know.
3: When you think about the journey you've been on, right? I mean, 30 years. I think you celebrated your 30th anniversary as a, as a band and label in 2019. Do you c- could you have ever imagined that 30 years later, you know, we'd be talking about the band and the label as these really influential kind of iconic institutions in in independent music in America?
1: No. I mean, I definitely, yeah, I definitely never would have imagined that. I love w- what we've done and I've enjoyed it very, very much. But sometimes I resent it. Like sometimes I even, I'm like, damn it. Like there were other things I wanted to do too. And now I don't, I haven't had time. <laughs> because, because this has turned out to be successful. It's, it's, um it's been a gift though. Yeah. Do you think that that what happened with Merge
3: and the influence it had had to do with just getting lucky, like just luckily finding the right artists? Or do you think it had to do with like the kind of the strategic, you know, and hard work approach that you guys took?
1: Both, probably. I, I think that um, our strategy has always been to be careful and grow slowly. And we've never had big goals on the long term. And I think that has served us well in a way because we, we've been cautious enough to avoid, in general, overextending ourselves. Yeah. And that has led to our longevity, I think. Mac? Yeah, I think it's
2: I think it's a combination because, of course, luck is always involved and you happen to run into the right person or pick up a, and put in a demo tape at the right time of day and it appeals to you in a certain way and you yeah. end up working with that band or whatever. But at the same time... You can build on that with doing things the right way and treating people well and doing a good job for your
3: artists. You know, I I just want to ask one more thing about the two of you because because of course this is this isn't just a story about the label or about Superchunk. It's it's mm. a story about your relationship. So, what do you think explains the success of your? business partnership like what from your perspective like why do you think it's worked I mean you were boyfriend girlfriend in your 20s you split up um, and that now you, in your, you guys are in your early 50s so it's you can look back and laugh or fondly remember it, but there's no that connection that that that's gone but uh, but still your business partnership and your friendship has really survived and thrived why what, what explains it I think Probably because
2: we, like, I'm not trying to do the business side. Right. You know, like, we're not trying to, like, I'm going to do that. I need to do that. I need to do that. Like, we're not trying to do step on each other's toes in some way.
1: But I I would say also that, um, you know, Mac and I are very different from each other. Like, he's got big ideas, and I'm cautious.
2: I'm the person going, like, we should do this. Mm -hmm. And then she's the person saying like why or I don't want to or something like I don't know but that is kind
1: of like the
2: the relationship
1: you know yeah we fulfilled different parts of what the business needs to succeed and I suspect if you had two max running merge merge wouldn't have kept going it would be awesome <laughs> <laughs>
3: It's Laura Balance and Mac McCann, founders of Merge Records and members of the band Superchunk. The band was on hiatus for much of the early 2000s, but over the past 10 years, they've been back performing together live and in studio. In fact, they have a brand new single just out. It's playing behind me right now, and it's called Endless Summer. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you want to reach us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at how I built this or my account at Guy Raz. You can find us on Instagram at how I built this npr or mine at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablouei. It was edited by Neva Grant with research help from Claire Murashima. Our production staff includes Casey Herman, Julia Carney, Elaine Coates, Farah Safari, Liz Metzger, and Harrison B. J. Choi. Our intern is Catherine Cipher. Jeff Rogers is our executive producer. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR.